You know, we've had some pretty good singing the last 12, 13 weeks or so. But it's nothing compared to today. There's nothing like coming together in the family and blending our voices together, singing praises to our God. We're so thankful to be back. In his book, Soul Keeping, John Ortberg begins the book by telling a story about a village up in the Alps. It was in that particular village there was a stream that flowed through it. That stream provided life to the village. The children would play in the stream. They would fish in the stream, flowing from the mountain peaks and from the melting snow. All of these little streams, they would eventually come together into that one stream. It was the life. It was the vibrancy. It was the power within that village. Now, living further away from the village was a man who had been hired to clear the streams, to take care of them, to make sure that the twigs, to make sure that the branches that had fallen from trees, he would get those out of there. He would make sure that the streams were kept clean. One day, the council of the village, they had a meeting, and they decided that they were low on funds. They, didn't need, they needed some new roads. They needed some just general upkeep within the village. And since they never saw the keeper of the stream anyway, they decided to cut out his pay for clearing the stream. And so word was sent to the man, and he was relieved of his duty. And it wasn't long before the stream was no longer the life of the village. The water had become dark. It was dirty. Kids were no longer swimming in the stream. People weren't going to the stream to to get their water for drinking. It was no longer the life because there was no one upstream taking care of the stream. Well, the village very quickly decided, we'll find the funds somewhere. And so they hired the man to return to his job. And he began cleaning the streams once again. And and once again, the stream, it became that sparkling life center of the village. Your soul. You may think of it as your spiritual heart. Your life force. Your soul is the stream, and you are the keeper. Our soul, when it's working the way that God has intended, when it's in harmony with God, when it's in harmony with ourselves, it becomes in harmony with those who we wish to relate to. It's our power. It's our vibrancy. When our soul is healthy, our entire being is healthy, Our relationship with God is healthy. Our relationship with others is healthy. All because of that spiritual heart being nurtured, being kept, being taken care of. When we think about our hearts, when we think about our spiritual hearts, we find that at the very core of that heart is faith and love. Whenever we think about God, you know, just who God is, we think of Him as God is holy and God is love. 
And we can think of, of God's heart as having those two chambers, that of holiness and that of love, both beating at the same time. Never one part of His nature being greater than the other. And we may also think about our hearts as having two chambers. And those two chambers are faith and love. The way that Peter described this in 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse 8, when, and, and when you look at the words of 1 Peter 1 verse 8, you can't help but reflect back to John chapter 20. Whenever Jesus was showing himself to the disciples, and particularly to Thomas. Remember Thomas? He was the one who doubted. Now, they all doubted at some point and to some degree, but Thomas is the one who gets the emphasis. Thomas is the one who has the magnifying glass placed over his life. And Jesus comes to him after the resurrection, and he says, touch my hands. Now, we have no record of whether or not Thomas actually did that, but Jesus says, touch my hands, thrust your hand into my side. And then comes that great statement from Thomas. He says, my Lord and my God. And Jesus says to him, because you see me, you believe. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet believe. And so I think Peter's picking up on this a little bit in 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse 8. He says, though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you... Do not now see Him. You believe in Him. And now you rejoice with Him with joy inexpressible. Remember Jesus told Thomas, Blessed are those who do not see and yet believe. And now Peter says, Those who believe in Him, those who love Him, and even though they haven't seen Him, they will have joy inexpressible. And at the very heart of this, you love Him and you believe Him. I want you to notice something within this passage, something that if we're not careful, we miss. And we miss this in our life as Christians, I think, sometimes. You know, we get very caught up in, in the Word of God, and we need to be caught up in the Word of God. We get very caught up in our worship services, and we need to be caught up in our worship services. We get caught up in our service to others, and, and we need to be caught up in all of those things. But sometimes we get so caught up in the Word of God or in the worship services or our services to others, the things of the Christian life, we get so caught up in those things that we forget about the person of the Christian life. Though you have not seen Him, you love Him. Though you do not see Him, you believe in Him. It's not all about believing the facts about Jesus, that He is the Son of God. Now, that's certainly important. It's not about just believing the facts of the events of the gospel, the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Yes, that's important. But our love of Him is of a person, of God, who humbled Himself and who came to this earth, who took upon Himself the form of a servant 
And then he died for us, becoming the source of salvation for all of us. Christianity is not a religion that's about chasing after the facts. Christianity is a religion of believing in a person, a personality. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. And very specifically what Jesus did on the cross for us. And so if there's ever a spiritual heart failure, the heart failure is because of a hymn Deficiency, H-I-M, Him deficiency. Instead of loving Him, our affections tend to go to, to something else, something that we would think to be important. And perhaps it is something that's important, but it might be displaced. And so rather than giving Jesus the utmost focus of our lives, we just sort of set Jesus to the side. Sometimes I call it back pocket Jesus. We take Jesus with us wherever we go, and we just sort of put him in our back pocket, kind of like we do with our wallets. It's there for a reason, for, for security reasons. I need my wallet because it has my debit card. I need my wallet because well, it's got a paper in it. It's got no cash in it, but if it had cash in it, if I had cash, I'd put it in my wallet. It has my driver's license. I, I need my insurance card. And so I put all of these things right here in my wallet. And then I just stick it right here in my back pocket. And there are times that we need those things in our back pocket. We need it for ready access. Sometimes we put it back there because we just feel safe with it. And so we take Jesus and we put him in our back pocket rather than allowing Him to be the focal part of our heart, rather than allowing Him to be the focus of everything about our being, we just put Him in our back pocket and we feel secure about it. Because, well, wherever we go, we still have Jesus. He's right back here. He's in my back pocket. No faith can be directed at other things. That saving faith that we have, the trust that we have in Jesus Christ. We, we place it in the something else, or we place it in the someone else. And again, as long as we have Jesus in our back pocket, we feel like we're secure. Church, that's a hymn deficiency. We think that everything is okay, but it's a hymn deficiency. I want to turn your attention to a couple of passages. Here's where we find Jesus and his half-brother James talking about a heart failure. Now, Jesus and James, they both talk about receiving the Word of God and what we do with how we receive it. But Jesus, he tends to focus more about the reception and what it means to the person who does believe. And so Jesus is really talking more about faith than he's talking about love in this instance. But James, when you look over into James chapter 1, James is talking about receiving too. But his emphasis is more upon the doing and how it affects our reception of the Word of God. But both Jesus and James are describing heart failure. In Matthew chapter 13, we find a wonderful parable. And it's a good examination because you can try to decide for yourself. You can read the parable 
and decide for yourself. As Jesus is describing the soils, as he's describing the ground, am I one of these? Which one of these am I? Good questions to ask. It's the very first parable in Matthew chapter 13. And then Jesus gives the explanation. It's very clear, very easy to understand. He describes a hard path where, where when the seed falls, it just sits on top of the ground. It doesn't penetrate the soil. It doesn't mean that it can't. It doesn't mean that it won't ever penetrate the soil. All the seed needs is just a little crack. But it doesn't penetrate right away, not at the time. And Jesus said, this is a hard soul. This is one who is not receptive to the Word of God. Then he describes a shallow soul, a rocky soul, where, where the seed is able to penetrate. But because of the rocks or because there's not enough, enough depth, the seed's not able to dig down and create those deep roots. And when the sun comes out, even though the plant has come out with great joy, it withers away. And he describes the seed that fell among the thorny ground, and the weeds grew up and strangled the plant. James, over in James chapter 1, he uses the same images. He appeals, I think, to the, to the very same teaching that Jesus is giving here. He says, Receive with meekness the implanted word, which is able to save your souls. But he uses some different terminology than Jesus did. And now his focus is on something that's different. Rather than being a focus of faith, instead it's a focus of love. He describes how he should be slow to speak, slow to wrath, slow to anger, be quick to hear because the anger of man does not work the righteousness of God. It doesn't accomplish the righteousness of God. He says, put aside, put away all filthiness of the flesh. That word filthy there, it's the same word that was used then in medical terminology for earwax. And it's almost as if James is painting this picture that there's all this wax built up in your ears so much that you can't even hear the Word of God as it's being told to you what to do. So you can't be a doer of the Word because you can't even be a hearer. You've blocked it out. He describes how, how a man will look at himself in the mirror and then quickly go away. Someone who, who glances at a mirror and forgets what he looks like right away. He describes, though, that there are some who, who will gaze into the Word of God. Those are the types of individuals, James says, that are able to be doers of the Word, to live a life of love because they're not glancers. They, they peer deeply into the things of God. Both of these men, Jesus and James, Half-brothers remind us of a, of a text of what Paul wrote to the Galatians where he basically said it's not about circumcision or uncircumcision. It's not about those things, but it's about faith working through love. When faith and love aren't working, when they're not in harmony with one another, there's a spiritual heart failure. So we ask today, do you have a spiritual heart failure? A failure in faith? 
or a failure in love or perhaps a failure in both. And it's very likely if there's a deficiency in one, there's a deficiency in the other. And so I want us to be very honest with ourselves this morning. Are we experiencing a spiritual heart failure as individuals? Well, how do you know? There are three things we recognize from Paul as he's writing, as he's closing Galatians chapter 5. He describes the conditions that are the result of, of a major problem. Now, he's just spoken about, he says, here are some characteristics of those who walk according to the flesh. Now, sometimes we're, we're very quick to think of walking according to the flesh as, as just being those things that are sinful. Walking according to the flesh is thinking like men think. It's thinking like the world thinks rather than trying to think like God thinks. And so Paul says, if we live in the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. As the Spirit is guiding us in our lives, we're also keeping in step. And he says, don't do this. Let us not become conceited. And then he describes what it means to be conceited, provoking one another and envying one another. Now this can be very deceptive because we look at a passage like this and, and maybe we say to, say to ourselves, oh sure, I'm keeping in step with the Spirit because I've got the Word of God and, and I'm living my life. I don't go around provoking other people. I don't envy other people. But are we sure? Because this can be very deceptive. Think about that superiority, that provoking one another. There was a time in the life of Peter whenever Jesus told him that he would fall away. Peter turned to him and he said, all of these others, everybody else, they may fall away, but I will not. Peter had his eyes on himself. And Peter did that quite often. In Luke chapter 5, when Jesus first called them, Peter looked at himself and he said, I'm a sinful man. You need to go away from me, Jesus. And Jesus says, you're looking at yourself. Look to me. Follow me and I will make you a fisher of men. Peter denied Jesus three times. He said, I don't know him. I don't know him. I don't know him. Then Jesus looked at him. And you know, you always find that to be the case. Wherever Peter had a faith deficiency or wherever Peter had a love deficiency, Jesus was right there. He was within arm's reach. Peter was looking off somewhere else, looking at the storm and sinking in the water. He found his salvation. He found his hope when he looked up to Jesus. Maybe there are times in our lives when we can say the same thing. Perhaps we have that superiority mentality. Well, I don't do this like somebody else does, or, or I'm going to do this even though no one else is doing it. It's an attitude of superiority, and it's not in step with the Spirit. There's also, though, on the opposite end of the spectrum, this attitude of inferiority. And sometimes this is deceptive because we label it as humility sometimes. But it's being concerned about what other people would think. 
We find Peter locked up inside of a room. Jesus comes to them. They're in fear of the Jews. They were concerned about what other people would think about them. That's what we see when Jesus is with them by the campfire. In John chapter 21, Jesus tells Peter that he's going to die. And immediately after that, he looks over at John and he says, Okay, Jesus, now, now how about this guy? What about this guy? And Jesus, never one to pull any punches, he says, What's that to you, Peter? What's that to you? Do we ever do that? Do we think about what God has told us to do or what, what maybe a, a Christian friend of, us, of ours has told us to do? This is something you need to do for the health of your soul. And, and we say, well, what about that guy? What about them? Jesus is telling us. Now, he's not saying don't be concerned about other people. But what he is telling us, what's it to you? You follow me. You have a heart that needs healing. And the third deceptive failure is that of displacement. Not keeping in step with the Spirit, but walking according to the flesh. And we find Peter again. I believe it's possible that he and the disciples were, that were told to go on the mountain there and wait for Jesus, they were there. And as they were on that mountain, maybe they're waiting for others to, to come and join and be with them, but they get impatient. Maybe they're wondering, is, is Jesus really even going to show up? And, and it's at that point, I'm not sure, but, but maybe it's at that point that Peter looks around and he looks at the other disciples. He says, I'm going fishing. I don't know if it was right or wrong. The Bible doesn't really tell us. But later when, when Jesus was there with the campfire, he's serving breakfast to those fishermen. He looks to Peter. And he says, do you love me more than these? And I don't think Jesus was talking about fish. I don't think Jesus was talking about boats. Basically, Jesus was asking him, okay, Peter, you once said, even if all of these fall away, I will not fall away. So you tell me now, Peter, do you love me more than all the other disciples do? And Peter answers him, honestly. Peter decides, though, he's going fishing. James and John joined him. Thomas and Nathaniel and two other disciples, very likely it was Philip and Andrew. They had a displacement. Their eyes were on activity rather than being on Jesus. So what can we do? You know, church is really very simple. What can we do? I, I have this deficiency in my faith, or I have this deficiency in my love, or I have a deficiency in both. I, I have this displacement in my life. My eyes aren't on Jesus. What can we do? Now, it seems like such an easy thing to ask, but it's also a very common thing for us to ask. But instead of asking that question, why don't we ask ourselves what Jesus is doing now? What is Jesus doing now? 
Let's remember faith and love. Let's remember that it was God who came down. Look at the very beginning of the Bible. How does it begin? Genesis 1, 1. In the beginning, God. Everything about our lives, positive or negative, how we will respond to Him. You want to know how to respond to Jesus? Look at the very first verse of the Bible. In the beginning, God. And everything that we see all throughout the rest of Scripture begins with God. God, for our benefit, reached down through Jesus for us, for you. And if He has saved you in that way, you can be sure that He will help you and He will heal you in that same way. God, through Christ, to you. And that's how we operate in our faith. That's how we operate in our love. And one of the most common themes throughout the resurrection we often miss. And it ought to be the thing that gives us the greatest joy. You know what it is? It's found in John 21, verse 1. Jesus revealed himself. Jesus revealed himself. The disciples, they were, they were worked up in fear. And what did Jesus do? He showed himself to them. Mary and Martha and the other ladies, they were concerned. They were weeping. They were sad. And what did Jesus do? He showed himself to them. There were disciples, too, who were walking on the road to Emmaus. And what does Jesus do? He shows himself to them. You look into 1 Corinthians Chapter 15, over 500 men. What did Jesus do? Those men didn't find him. He showed himself to them. He revealed himself. Church, do you find yourself in a spiritual heart deficiency? If you do, trust that Jesus will show himself to you. Just open your eyes. Open your hearts to see Him. Think back to what God through Christ has done for you. If Jesus would hang on the cross of your sinful soul, surely He will stand on the shoreline of your troubled heart. So just follow Him. Jesus told Peter, just follow me. Just follow me. The question was, are you in a heart failure? In faith? In love? Or perhaps both? Jesus wants to know. He's already on the shoreline. He knows your net is empty. Just listen to his direction and come and follow him. He's there waiting. Come to him now as we stand and sing together.